0: diet exercise and what else is essential
1: for overall health (laughs) sleep a good night's rest is rare for those suffering from sleep apnea diagnosis and management of sleep apnea tonight on call with the prairie doc health information based on science built on trust Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your Prairie Doc host this evening. Tonight's episode is part of our 21st season providing health information based on science, built on trust. We continue to provide trusted health information this evening as we discuss sleep apnea. Joining us to address this topic are Dr. Michael Pietila from Yankton Medical Clinic, PC and Dr. Jeffrey Boyle from Avera Medical Group Neurology, Sioux Falls. Welcome and thanks to both of you for joining us today in the studio in Brookings on the campus of South Dakota State University. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Pietola.
2: So I'm a pulmonary and critical care and sleep medicine doc down at the Yankton Medical Clinic and uh, Vera Sacred Heart Hospital. Um, I've done the show more than a few times. Um, practicing sleep medicine, I'm seeing lots of patients uh, with sleep apnea. South Dakota, native originally, went to South Dakota State University, Jackrabbit fan, through and through, um, and um, professor with the School of Medicine, and happy to be here to talk about a very important topic, sleep.
1: Yes, thank you, thank you so much for coming, good to have you back on the show. So Dr. Boyle, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice.
3: Sure, uh, I'm trained in neurology. Uh, I Born in, in Sioux City and then went to um, the University of Nebraska Medical Center for Medical School, University of Iowa for uh, neurology and fellowship. And then I came about seven years ago and I'm at Avera doing mostly neurology and about uh, about 25% sleep. So I still see a lot of sleep patients every day.
1: Excellent, all right. Well, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions. Viewers can contact us in three ways. Call one 888 send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide your contact information when submitting your question. So this is going to be a a great topic. Sleep apnea affects so many people. I've had a sleep study checking for sleep apnea because sleep is so important and when you're not getting it, it affects everything in your life. It's so, so hard. So do we want to just start at the very base here? What is sleep apnea?
2: So um, the most common form of sleep apnea, which I'll speak to, pulmonologists generally care for um, most obstructive sleep apnea patients. There's central sleep apnea and complex sleep apnea, a little more on the neurology side. but. Obstructive sleep apnea is by far the most common type of sleep apnea and it's a phenomenon where patients when they fall off to sleep, especially deep sleep and the deepest stages of sleep, their airway either collapses or obstructs enough that their airflow reduces to a point where their oxygen level drops and their brain waves shift from deeper sleep to lesser sleep. Maybe not arousing, but um, or awakening, but arousing from deeper sleep to lesser sleep. And that happens repeatedly throughout the night, Um, sometimes as many times as 60, 80, 100 times an hour, but it's abnormal if it's more than five times an hour. And the consequences of that sleep apnea are multiple, um, from daytime sleepiness to all sorts of other health complications. And so it's an important thing to consider in our patients who have other medical problems or those who complain of daytime sleepiness or disrupted sleep at night.
1: So if they're arousing and, and waking up, or partially waking up, so they're not getting into that deep, restorative sleep, I mean, I can't imagine if this is happening, you know, 60 times an hour, that's, that's once a minute. You're not getting a full minute's rest no. at all at night.
3: Go ahead. Yeah, yeah the, um, the brain, we don't know why we need sleep, really. You know, Why can't we just be awake all the time? And there's a reason, and we're still figuring it out and it you know the sleep medicines kind of started with the brain and, and you know how um the brain waves in sleep change and that's how we have all these stages of sleep and the stages mean something we're still figuring all that out um but yeah the the apnea part of that word means not you know stopped breathing or, or not breathing and so you can not breathe because something gets in the way, like your tongue kind of makes you snore. You can you can stop breathing because your brain tells you you don't need to breathe for some reason, you know, some medical reason or one one reason or another, um, or you can have muscular weakness so you just can't um, you just can't breathe because your lung muscles are just so weak. And so there's different different kinds of apnea. Um, certainly there's some very common forms, but. Um, You know, I think we've done a pretty good job in the last 50, 60 years of, you know, diagnosis and management of these things. So we we really can help people, you know, get into those restful stages of sleep that they need.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're already getting really good questions from uh, viewers here. A caller states that they've been having trouble sleeping, but their sleep apnea test came back negative. They've been taking five milligrams of melatonin and two milligrams of Benadryl before bed, which they think has been helpful. Um, is there something else that they should be doing or you know, what else could be causing this, this difficulty with sleeping and are there any long-term side effects for taking Benadryl and, and melatonin?
3: Great question, we get that a lot. Um, it, I feel that it is kind of what that turning off the brain sort of part of, of uh, you know, sleep onset. Insomnia is very, very common in, in the United States. The, um, what I like to think about is how, you know, we can control certain parts of our body, but, but sleep onset is not, it's not something we can control, it's involuntary. So all we can do is set up an environment that promotes that, that stage, or that, that uh, sets the stage to help us fall asleep. This, you know, some people will say this is something called sleep hygiene, that you can take care of your environment, take care of your brain, take care of, of your bed in a way that promotes sleep, and that you, um, when it's time to go to bed, you're on a regular schedule um, and uh, you have a, a good pattern and, and avoid you know, alcohol and nicotine and, and other things that help you just fall asleep at a regular time when you kind of hope to. That's what I, um, one of the things that I I bring up in talking about this. Um, The medications, uh, antihistamines, are very commonly used. They kinda make you sleepy, and and for a lot of folks, they help quite a bit. Over time, I think that the antihistamines, and histamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain, blocking that with an antihistamine is probably not the best strategy, especially if it's something like, well, you know, take a warm shower before bed, or, you know, if, you're, if your dog is is big and he's sitting on your legs all night and waking you up and, y- you know, um, y- you know, these th- are pretty easy fixes sometimes to just improve your sleep hygiene and then you don't need to use the the antihistamines. They, in, you know, with years and years of, of reg- relatively high dose antihistamines, we've seen a little bit of, of memory problems in, in uh, the older age, so that's, one of the reasons I try and get my patients to recognize their sleep habits to improve um, insomnia. Yeah.
1: And definitely Benadryl has more side effects as you get older. I mean, there's, it's not an ideal medication with the risks of grogginess, kind of that hangover, falling, if you mm-hmm. have to get up in the middle of the night, use the restroom. I mean, so it's not a benign, even though it's over the counter, mm-hmm. there are still definitely risks and benefits to consider when taking that medication. Absolutely. All right. Well, a caller from Webster says, "Should you wake a sleepwalker?"
2: <laughs> I don't deal a lot with the sleepwalking, sleepwalking um, so I don't know that I can make a comment uh, based on science whether that's
3: dangerous or not dangerous. How about you, Dr. Boyle? For non-REM parasomnias, so this is not the dreaming sort of behaviors you can have for the the. Uh, sleepwalking, sleep talking, night terrors—these sorts of, of things that happen in, in non-REM sleep—they, um, uh, the the general strategy I have is to just gently guide, you know, the sleepwalker kind of back to bed. Trying to awaken them can be emotionally charged. It can cha- uh, change that 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 behavior, that parasomnia, into something um, like a night terror, where they can become more confused and um, uh, dismayed. And so for my, my son had these um, sleep uh, walking episodes, he's 10 now, um, I, I found that giving him a glass of water helped, which I, I didn't know what I you know, I'm just a dad trying to figure this out, to. you know. But I said, well, c- you know, Sean, come here. And so we, we sat down and, and I just had a water for him and he took it and kind of like he's half asleep, and then after he drank, he kind of seemed to wake up a bit. And I don't know if this was like a stimulation of the brain stem, which is like a lower part of the brain. And that kind of recalibrated his, his, um, uh, his sleep circuits or, or wakefulness circuits. Um, but that's what, I, that's what I found in my personal life for this. I don't, again, I don't know about the science of it, but, um, but that's what I've been using.
1: Excellent. Well let's get back to sleep apnea here. As far as diagnosing it, um, a patient states they don't want to do the sleep test in the hospital. Is there another option for them?
2: Yeah, so when I first started practicing sleep medicine 20 years ago, the only option was in the sleep lab and it was generally two nights. One night for diagnostic purposes, one night for a positive airway pressure titration and then we evolved into a single night study where you could come in and do four hours of diagnostic and four hours of therapeutic and now in the right subset of patients, those who you have uh, high pretest probability or likelihood of sleep apnea. Who meet the typical criteria large neck, high BMI, daytime sleepiness, who don't have chronic heart or lung disease or a history of dementia or strokes or something that would make them more prone to have a complex form of sleep apnea or neuromuscular weakness or restricted lung disease, mm-hmm. a home sleep test is very reasonable and that's most patients, I mean most people I see um, can do a home sleep test and in that right subset of patients Um, they're pretty good. Um, You know, they don't pick up on the mildest forms of sleep apnea as well as an in-lab study. So if you do a home sleep test, it comes back borderline and you have all the other typical symptoms, then I usually put them in the sleep lab. But the vast majority of people can do the home sleep test. I can interpret it, I can get them an auto titrating positive airway pressure device, an APAP, a form of positive airway pressure therapy. They get an interface that's comfortable for them, whether it's over their nose or in their nose, preferably nasal over a full face mask, and then they go home and start using it on their own schedule. I, I ask them to try to get four hours a uh, minimum of 70% of nights, but preferably all night, every night. And so this gentleman or, or, or woman may be a great candidate for a home sleep test.
1: Okay, excellent. And we were talking about you know, diagnosing the sleep apnea. We talk about the apnea hypopnea index or how many events they're having. Uh, viewer's asking, what is the acceptable limit for apnea events per hour? Because they've been using their CPAP for about five years now. At one point, they were down to just three events an hour. Now they're up to seven events an hour. Is that concerning?
2: Um, probably not. Um, and so you know, the idea of treating sleep apnea isn't to get perfect sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, And so it varies on severity and in your other illnesses in life. Um, And so normal is five or less per hour um, in most instances. Five to 15 is mild disease, apnea, hypopnea index. 15 to 30 is considered moderate and greater than 30 is severe. And between 5 and 15, if they don't have daytime symptoms of sleepiness, if they don't have serious comorbidities that would be made worse by even mild sleep apnea, CPAP may not be necessary in that setting. That patient might benefit from lifestyle modifications, avoidance of supine sleep, no alcohol or sedatives near bedtime, weight loss. Once you get up, up to 15 to 30, um, if patients have any daytime symptoms, they should try treating that with CPAP. Um, and if they have comorbid illnesses like hypertension or AFib or heart failure, or those diseases we know are very closely related to sleep apnea, they should be treated. And then greater than 30, we feel like everybody should tr- at least try CPAP.
1: Okay, so definitely try it. So um, let
2: Oh, and commenting, you know, when we do get you started, our goal is to get that apnea hypopnea index as low as we can, Um, but it's really a lot about your symptoms too. Are you sleeping more soundly? Are you feeling better rested? Then if your AHI is a little high, I don't sweat it.
1: Okay, all right, so how they're feeling is just as important as the number, the printout. Absolutely. All right, a caller from Madison says, they have a sleep apnea machine, would like to know why they're waking up in the middle of the night with dry mouth and the machine is dry.
3: Well, the humidification is really important. The, um, the pressure, uh, the, the way that the machine makes the pressure actually dries that air out. So you have to have the humidifier in there or your airway is gonna be very, very dry. Um, the biggest um, thing that I have seen, the biggest problem in that dry mouth is that there's a leak. And that just, especially in winter and the air is so dry, you know that um uh, that water will just evaporate you know it's a heated you know um uh, humidifier and that water can be gone by two in the morning okay. and so um you know if you if you don't have a mask that fits right it's leaking if your mouth is blowing open in the middle of the night you're not waking up it, you're going to lose a lot of humidity out that uh, out, of, out of that mask and out of that um system and so it is just kind of um getting a mask that fits and um, that, that should t- solve most of the problem, I think. So maybe
1: talk with whoever got the mask and do a little troubleshooting.
3: Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Any, yeah well, the only other I'd thing add. is just
2: I agree with you. That's the, usually the biggest um, thing is that the mask either is old and now the the Seal. material against your face is mm-hmm. broken down from the natural oils mm-hmm. and you haven't changed it in a month or three months or whatever and so if it fits well, change your mask. Um, if it doesn't fit well, get a different mask. Yeah. There's so many different interfaces out there, I hate to even call them masks, there's All right. so many options.
1: Okay. Well, when someone is diagnosed with sleep apnea and prescribed a CPAP or BiPAP, there can be lots of confusing parts. Sanford Health Equipment in Brookings is here to explain and demonstrate all the tools that come along with the sleep apnea machine.
4: Sleep apnea machine is a machine that helps to treat one of the more serious medical conditions in which once you fall asleep, you your brain doesn't allow you to continue breathing. It may be because of an obstruction in your throat. Your soft tissue relaxes when you sleep. And so the machine itself um, is a just called a CPAP or it might be called a BiPAP. CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. BiPAP is just a bi-level, two levels of pressure that also help hold the airway open.
5: If you're sleeping at night and you open your mouth, we're gonna want to put you in a full face option. That's gonna cover both your nose and your mouth there. Um, so the, one of the most popular options we have right here, it's a ResMed product. So. As you can see here, it's got the magnets for attachment. Um, The really nice thing about this mask as well is it's got four points for adjustment. So you've got two up here that can kind of adjust the top portion, two down here for the bottom portion. Um, This one really has some really, really good silicone seal on this one too to prevent leaks. It's got a very, very high pressure rating, which makes it really, really good for your basic CPAP or your BiPAP. So what you see here is um, one of our most popular nasal options. So if a patient walks into the store, um, usually the only way I set them up in a nasal option is if we know for a fact that when they sleep at night, their mouth is closed, right? So we don't want that mouth opening up when you have a nasal device on. So this is our most popular nasal one, again, has the two magnets on the side. there, very, very convenient, easy to operate, easy to put on. There are those two adjustments at the top and two adjustments at the bottom. Um, for comfortability as well. I call this like a, a hybrid option. So this is gonna go up under the nose and over the mouth right here. Um, sometimes when patients first start their treatment, um, sometimes when you get that full face over their nose like that, they can kind of get claustrophobic. Sometimes maybe it can cause some issues on their nose. Um, this is a really good option for those people. It's very comfortable. Also really, really rated well for high pressure situations like in a bi-level or high pressure CPAP machine. This is gonna sit under the nose. So we would call this a nasal pillow option. Um, this option is probably Um, The best option we've had for being honestly very simple. It's you put it on, you put it over, not a lot of straps, very simplistic. Another good um, positive for this one too, people really seem to like this one. Instead of your hose coming out the front like this, it can kind of be a pain when you're rolling around at night. This gives you an option to have that tubing come out of the back like that. It kind of stays out of the way. People really enjoy that, so you don't have to be laying on your tubing every once in a while. But the biggest thing for a patient and when you're starting CPAP is to really get that good mask fit, okay? That's what we put a lot of our time into, and that's what's really important for people is to, to really find that right mask fit because even though these are the most popular ones, they're not they're not the most they're not the best fit for everybody, right? So we wanna make sure we individualize that and make sure we really, really find that right fit for them.
1: How does someone get recommended to get a CPAP or BiPAP? How does that get prescribed?
2: Um, So if you have suspicion or your physician has suspicion that you might have sleep apnea, um, the way that our system works is that you go and have a sleep study to confirm that. um, And then through your insurance, you obtain a a CPAP or BiPAP device. So you're referred for a sleep study, that sleep study's positive, then you get a machine. Um, And that's the way it works for now. But sometimes you know somebody has sleep apnea, Mm -hmm. you'd like to just get them a machine. And some people without insurance I've had do that. Um, But the general way is you see your provider, they might refer you to a sleep doc, you do a sleep study, whether it's at home or in the lab, and then you're prescribed a machine through one of the home medical supply companies.
1: So, CPAP or BiPAP, that's kind of the gold standard for treating sleep apnea. But I've had people that say, I can't tolerate that mask, or it doesn't work for me, or for whatever reason, it doesn't work. What other options are there for treating sleep apnea?
3: Well, there's, um, I, I always emphasize that CPAP and BiPAP are the gold standard. You can take somebody looking at their oxygen level through their sleep study and say, you know, they're. They, they stop breathing 100 times an hour. And you can get them on a good pressure for CPAP and it would be 95%, a straight line all night while they're on it. So it is, if you can wear it, it is 100% effective, I feel like, in a good, in a good um, system. Now, if you can't tolerate it and you have mild apnea, there's a dental appliance you can use. And this sort of, you know, the, with a lot of the problem being from the tongue, kind of sitting in the back of the throat, if you pull the tongue forward and pull the jaw forward, it, t- it pulls the tongue away from the back of the throat. And this is usually done by a dentist. It can be done, um, i just say an outpatient, sort of a, a clinic visit. The problems I see is that it's, it's only about 20 to 40% effective, probably more like 20. So you can take a, a person who stops breathing 20 times an hour very symptomatic and they can get down to like 16 times an hour so it's kind of more in that you know mild range or a person that you know is like 12 times an hour and then they come down to 10 so it can help these mild sleep apnea patients get a better night's sleep the jaw gets kind of tender though as it's mm-hmm. pulled forward which is uh, can be rough in my world because they get headaches with that okay. so then I have another problem I get to you know help people with um, and then there's another um, device that is more, is newer, and it's, a, it's called a hypoglossal nerve stimulator. And so this um, is commercialized under the uh, brand name Inspire, currently. And it's FDA approved, it's been approved about seven, eight years ago. And it stimulates a part of the tongue, one of the nerves, that goes forward. And so if that nerve is stimulated, when somebody breathes in, then it opens their airway, just probably half a centimeter or a centimeter, just enough that you you can get some air in. And uh, you only turn it on at night. Um, the the battery is kind of in the upper chest, like a pacemaker, and then it um, it pushes that tongue forward um, enough to to get some air, and you don't have to wear a mask. Um, don't have to bring the mask on the airplane, which is always really <laughs> something that people have to um, you know contend with. But, um, but it's only about 80% effective, and it's only for certain people. There's the FDA and, the, and the, the studies that approved this had very strict criteria for the people that qualify. So it's not, a, it's not for everybody, and certainly you have to have medical evaluation to make sure that if it's, if it's right for you I mean if you need it.
1: All right, so don't throw away the masks just yet.
2: No, No, I would reiterate, CPAP's by far the most effective CPAP or BiPAP or positive airway pressure and the commercials you're seeing where people are, you know, upset about their CPAP machine, most people do well with CPAP and so everyone who who is getting an evaluation should be prepared to do CPAP or BiPAP and then in, you know, situations where it's the appropriate patient in the situation where CPAP is cannot be used, then consider referral to an ENT surgeon to go through Mm -hmm. the process of getting an Inspire device. Mm
1: And sometimes do they do procedures moving like part of the soft palate and the uvula? Is that or did that kind of go out of vogue?
2: <laughs> so uvulopalatal pharyngeoplasty or U triple P, was really promoted by our military um, when they first started recognizing uh, uh, military members with sleep apnea, and um, it's a big surgery to go through, um, and it's only effective in very limited cases, um, and so again everybody should be prepared to do a CPAP or a BiPAP at least as a trial, and with the Intention that that's the best treatment so I can't think of the last time I referred somebody
3: for a UP triple P no there is um, one case in seven years um, that I had where they I referred for it actually the for the inspire device and they ended up having UP p3 and it was um, uh, we'll see how it goes yeah kind of a thing
1: okay so a caller from Hill City would like to know if dreaming while on CPAP is normal I'm assuming they're gonna talk about talk about REM rebound?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: All right, tell us about REM so, rebound.
3: Yeah, um, so the REM sleep is when we're completely paralyzed, and when your tongue is paralyzed, it, it falls backwards sometimes, and that obstructs the airway. So the brain does a really good job at avoiding REM sleep while you have moderate to severe sleep apnea because you get so low on oxygen, and then you wake up anyway. And so for years, they only get, you, you know the patient will get very little REM sleep and then finally, the you know, you put people on CPAP, and it's amazing on the, on the sleep study, you know, when they finally get like a, a split night protocol where we have them on CPAP, and like they have two hours straight of REM sleep. And they'll wake up and say, oh my gosh, I had the most vivid dreams. And so yeah, you, you end up having deeper and more consolidated REM sleep with CPAP.
1: Okay, so if you never dreamed before, you might start now.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's a good thing.
1: That's a good thing, all right, sounds good. Uh, this uh, email says they've been using their CPAP for exactly one year. Before they used it, they would only sleep about six hours and have trouble with some heart palpitations and irregular heartbeats. Now they're averaging nine to nine and a half hours at night. The heart troubles have stopped, but are they sleeping too long? Is that, is that a concern? And they said they're having some watery eyes that last all day and pressure on the temples, is that because of the CPAP machine being on too long?
2: Well, I wouldn't say that nine hours is too long asleep. Um, And you know, sleep deprivation is cumulative over time. And so when a patient has sleep apnea, that stacks up that lack of sleep. And so it's not uncommon for patients to be able to sleep longer and regain some of that lack of sleep. The watery eyes can potentially, if the mask is leaking, be related, but I would talk to the eye doctor about other potential causes for that. Um, and then if the, if the mask is causing the, the discomfort, just try a different harness and a different interface. Um, you know, another situation that I've had is some patients will stay in bed for eight, nine, 10 hours before they're diagnosed and treated for sleep apnea. They get on their CPAP, they improve their sleep, they get more REM, they don't need as much time in bed. And so that's another scenario where I used to sleep eight or nine hours, but now I'm only six. It's really about how you're feeling the next day. And if you need eight or nine hours of sleep, that's fine.
1: All right. Another viewer on Facebook says they're not wearing their mask because there's something wrong with it. An hour into their sleep, they wake up and they can't catch their breath. What should they do?
3: Um, the, uh, there's a lot of reasons to wake up in the middle of the night. There's these sleep cycles, and so as we go through one cycle, which can be about an hour, then you have a little bit of REM or maybe N3 sleep, which is another deep s- stage. And then you can kind of go up to light sleep and wake up. And sometimes it's um, uh, it's just your, the cycle, the feeling of um, you know, not getting a, enough air is a little bit concerning though. I'd say that, that it could be that they're in REM sleep also. and um, that they're under titrated, it, it could be that they need um, a little bit higher pressure during REM sleep. Certainly, I've seen patients where they do fine until they get into REM sleep, and they're just really they need a lot more pressure. And so, in those cases, um, I, I you know they need an in lab study so we know what we're treating exactly in that stage, and then we can you know get the pressure right for them so they stop waking up and stop feeling that air hunger.
1: Okay. Do most machines kind of auto titrate nowadays or do you have to because I remember that when I was doing these the sleep lab would say put your pressures between 10 and 15 and that was their prescription I had to put the pressures but now is that auto titrate kind of making that less necessary?
2: Um, it just depends. Um, so auto titrating positive airway pressure therapy is m- usually pretty effective for most patients. The situation that this caller or, or emailer was describing is one where I'd want them in the sleep lab mm-hmm. because that could be central apnea. Okay. Um, it could be under titration, mm-hmm. um, and there's just no good way to know with certainty. Um, and so. Uh, You know, the old days where everybody got a certain CPAP pressure is gone, um, but when you start AutoPAP, if you're having a sense I can't get enough air, you're either not getting enough air because your pressure's too low, or you might be forgetting to breathe, as he mentioned earlier, where this phenomenon in certain patients where our brain gets confused or forgets to breathe at night, and then CPAP doesn't help that, Um, and so you have to talk about getting on a machine that breathes for you, because CPAP doesn't breathe for you, that breathes for you when you stop. And so that's BiPAP with a rate or devices called AVAPS machines um, that sense how much you're breathing and target a certain minute ventilation, a number of breaths and the depth of a breath and corrects that. But you gotta go in the sleep lab to do that. Okay.
1: So that's not something that your home sleep study is gonna pick up on. That's a little bit more complex. Yeah, so if you
2: start AutoPAP and you're waking up feeling like you're gasping for air or getting suffocated. Um, or Feel like you forgot to breathe, okay. you need to go in the sleep lab. Perfect,
1: all right. Well, it's a tale as old as time. My partner is snoring too loud. If you're the one who snores, a sleep study may be the perfect move for you. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer dove into the procedure along with a mock patient, our on-call TV director, Lowell Haig.
4: Brooke Jensen is a polysomnographic technologist, or plainly, the person who helps with sleep studies.
0: A sleep study is where we monitor your sleeping, your breathing, your heart rhythm, sleep disturbances, different things that would keep people awake, leg movements, um, basically just your overall sleep.
4: Jensen says people who are snoring or having trouble sleeping come to do sleep studies. And most of the time, she is searching for sleep apnea.
0: I'm able to assess if they have it, and it has to be um, a certain amount for me to assess that. If it's like a mild amount, the doctor would have to look at it. Um, but also making sure their heart rate's okay. Obviously, if something were to go wrong with the patient, I'd have to come in and you know intervene or something. Um, and then also you know making sure that they're sleeping okay, all those different things.
4: When people come for a sleep study, all they have to do is sleep, however, Jensa says that is easier said than done because of all the wires attached to the patient.
0: We start with leg wires, monitoring their leg movements, um, EKG, that shows their heart rhythm, and then belts that show how they breathe. And then once we get more up to the head, um, there's a lot on the head that show how they they sleep, um, if they have, where they grind their teeth, or um, different eye movements, because that also shows REM sleep. We have a couple that sit under their nose that show if they breathe or not breathe. Um, and then one other finger for their oxygen saturations.
4: Jensen says to prepare for the sleep study, pack clothes to sleep in, shower to clean the hair for better readings, and for guys, groom your facial hair at least.
0: Men, sometimes we ask if they're a normal clean shaven person just to shave, uh, but lots of men like to have beard hair, so I just work around it if I have to.
4: The sleep study lasts around 10 hours, with the patient asleep at least for six hours for good results. If the first study comes back as sleep apnea, if they haven't been diagnosed already.
0: We will get them to the correct pressure um, if we're able to do that. And then after they leave, they'll get a home medical store that gives them their equipment, goes through all that, explains how it works. And then a couple months later, once they've trialed it, worked it through, the doctor will just make sure everything's working okay, that it's working for them. Once they
4: have a sleep apnea machine, Jensen says the patient will see near immediate sleep improvement.
0: I see a lot of men that come in because their wives tell them to, (laughs) that's a huge thing. Um, But usually because they're just tired of feeling tired and they have this, makes them feel better. And then a lot of people swear by it. They wear it every night and they feel a lot better.
1: that was nice to see what the sleep lab looks like and kind of what you'd be expecting it's like being in a fancy hotel with a lot of wires on your your body Mm -hmm. attached so Um, but I can say from personal experience uh, from the two sleep studies I've done that uh, I actually fell asleep very quickly Um, more quickly than I perceived I fell asleep Uh, they woke me up the next morning and said hey how long did you think it took you to fall asleep I was like hour and a half easy said five minutes Mm -hmm. So sleep perception is very difficult to know how much you're sleeping, when you're falling asleep. Uh, yeah, I think that's very interesting. A viewer has, how do we distinguish the need between um, having problems with sleep apnea versus getting up for other things like prostate issues or hot flashes or restless legs? How do we know it's sleep apnea?
2: Yeah, and so I think again, based on um, you know, the clinical picture, is the patient overweight? Do they have a large neck? Is their airway crowded? Do they suffer from hypertension, atrial fibrillation, those sorts of things make you think more about sleep apnea. But sometimes, it's just insomnia or disrupted sleep. Frequent nighttime urination can be due to sleep apnea. And so what I tell patients is a sleep study is likely to be helpful um, for, for those sorts of things. You mentioned palpitations, you know, there's a clear association between heart arrhythmias, especially atrial fibrillation and sleep apnea. And without treating the sleep apnea, the AFib is really difficult to control. And so patients who have AFib need to consider a sleep study. Mm-hmm. Um, and hypertension, if you have high blood pressure and you have sleep apnea, it's going to take a lot of medicine or you may never get control of your blood pressure without treating your sleep apnea. And so in those patients who are having difficulty managing their high blood pressure, a sleep study needs to be considered.
1: Yeah. So there's more consequences than just a poor night's sleep if you're not treating your sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. So, Alright. A viewer from Rapid City says, is there any correlation between bruxism or teeth grinding and sleep apnea?
3: Yeah, we see bruxism with, with okay. uh, sleep apnea. The, um, I think it's a sense of arousal that you you know uh, are low on oxygen or obstructing the airway and the brain senses that and then has to try and wake up to a, to a point that you can breathe again. I, I think of the head and neck muscles as sort of special muscles for um, the nervous system. And so the, the um, masseter here uh, that, that sort of helps with chewing and then the temporalis up, up on the uh, forehead, or on the temple, um, will grind the teeth back and forth. And so your your dentist may say, oh, you're grinding your teeth a lot. And that may, if you have other signs and symptoms, you say, well, maybe I should get a sleep study or at least talk to my doctor about it.
1: Okay, all right. What about, uh, people have lots of wearable devices, you know, Apple watches, smart watches, Fitbits that track sleep. Are they accurate? If it's saying, oh, I'm only getting four hours of sleep and I've got you know 200 arousals, is that, do I need to be concerned? Should I talk to my doctor?
3: That is a very good question. I think we're still trying to figure that out. One of the problems is that Fitbit and Garmin and Apple Watch, they are keeping their, the way they are judging sleep, a secret. It's proprietary, and so they're not sharing like, You know, this isn't research at the university that's out published in a white paper that we can go read. This is behind closed doors on on Apple's campus and I'll never know it, probably. And so we can't study them very well. And it's hard to know what the use is in them. If I have a patient with a neurologic condition like Parkinson's disease, who moves a lot at night, then the movement, gyroscope that the watch is using to say oh they're not moving then they must be in REM sleep well those patients are not gonna have a good reading on those watches and there's other things too that cause excessive movements at night things that will change your heart rate sometimes I think that the heart rate is part of their algorithm and how they judge what stage of sleep you're on and if you're asleep and even if like I'm Watching TV with my wife for an hour before I go to bed, it might think I'm asleep because I'm not moving very much. You know, maybe my heart rate goes down. You know, I'm just just laying there. So, um, I use uh, that information with a grain of salt, certainly.
1: So, definitely not a replacement for a sleep study.
3: No. I think we've all experienced where we have our Apple
2: Watch or Garmin on or our cell phone and you don't do many steps that day and it tells you you had 10,000 because something's causing that gyro to, to count a step or you have a day where you did it a lot of activity and it didn't pick up on it. Mm-hmm. So again, actigraphy, which is a monitoring of your physical activity as a representation of not sleeping, is something we've used in the past and we still use in medicine. Um, but it's not, we don't know again how they're determining whether you're sleeping or not with those. And um, we don't know how accurately it's recording that. So it doesn't replace um, better studies. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, so a is asking about uh, where do you purchase CPAP masks? So if they don't like the full face mask or they don't like their nasal pillow, where where do they get them and, and how often should we replace them?
2: Yeah, so again, um, home medical supply companies are the traditional place where you get the machines and you get the equipment and they generally have a guideline for you and your insurance partly determines how often you can get new masks, new liners, new tubing, um, that sort of thing. Um, there's also online resources, CPAP.com or Amazon, um, and so if, if you prefer just to sort of manage it yourself without the assistance of the home medical supply, medical supply company and you're you feel savvy about that. Um, I have a lot of patients who do it that way too. Um, But the one thing I would say is, is a mistake that some of my patients make is not changing that mask. Um, liner out frequently enough for hate to say mask. Nasal CPAP's fantastic. And so if you can do nasal, that's what my preference is for patients. But make sure you're changing that liner frequently enough that it's not breaking down and leaking and and you want your straps to be good elastic. And
3: and so the home medical supply company can help guide you. The internet's a good resource. I, I feel like some patients will say, oh, my mask was really good and then it started irritating my skin. And I'll say, well, are you washing it? Are you cleaning it? Because our oil then will build up on those masks and then their, their skin will react against those, that bacteria that grows on the mask. It's not reacting against the silicone, which is actually hypoallergenic and actually okay. very um, uh, uh, highly technical substance. So just wash it. And I think a lot of the problems um, will go away if you just keep your equipment clean. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. So, is sleep apnea um, positional? Does it affect people more that sleep on their back or side, or?
2: Yeah, so I think you had a comment on your um, screen that, you know, before age 50, it's uncommon in women, Mm -hmm. Um, after age 50, it's equal to men and women. I think that's important to keep in mind, too. Um, If you have a woman less than 50 who's having daytime sleepiness, sleep apnea is less likely than in a a man or in a woman over 50. As far as position, yes, makes a big difference in many patients, and in fact, in some instances, patients have strictly supine, or sleeping on their back-related sleep apnea, because if you look at the anatomy, when you're on your back, more chance your tongue's going to fall back, mandible's going to fall back, and in some instances, um, positional therapy is an appropriate treatment. Um, a patient just needs to strictly avoid sleeping on their back, which these patients will generally say, "Well, I never sleep on my back." And then you do the sleep study and they're three hours on their back. And so you have to be fairly aggressive mm-hmm. in that patient with more significant positional sleep apnea to either avoid supine sleep. I just tell them, get a CPAP. You can sleep however you want then, mm-hmm. and All it right. works.
1: Otherwise, they're sewing tennis balls in the back of their yeah. pajamas yeah, and, and positional pillows, pillows. and and, yeah, and that. And doesn't you know, always.
2: It's not the best.
1: So the, the position you fall asleep in and wake up in may not be where you're spending the rest of the night. Correct. All right. So a caller from Bilbeck said she saw an article somewhere that talked about skinny women sleep apnea. I was wondering, is that real? Could Or do you just have to be a fat, overweight guy with... <laughs> over 50 to get sleep apnea?
3: <laughs> I think it's anatomy. I think it is the tongue, the base mm-hmm. of the tongue, which can go quite ways down your throat. And, um, and then there's, you know, for overweight um, individuals, there are some lateral pharyngeal fat pads and those kind of close. But if you have just a prominent tongue and your palate hangs kind of low in your mouth and you can't even see the, the punching bag thing, the uvula, mm-hmm. then that would say that you're just your anatomy is, um, is conducive to this, you know, to obstruction. I, I always look at, you know, the, the family members in the room and if somebody's, you know, but they look the same and, and dad has sleep apnea and looks like the son. I say, well, you probably have the same anatomy. It, sleep apnea is genetic, but with your anatomy, you're built the same way, kind of deep inside your throat. And if that's the case, I mean, that's why a thin person can have sleep apnea. So
1: it's not just obesity that causes it, it's how the tongue and the airway is inside the neck that you, yes. you can't see.
4: Yeah, perfect, yeah.
1: All right, well, another caller was wondering, is there a thing like reverse sleep apnea? They said they don't struggle with falling asleep, but they struggle with waking up. And they wake up very tired and they don't feel like they're rested.
2: So that can be a manifestation of sleep apnea as well because they're not sleeping deep enough during the night and so then they wake up feeling drowsy. Um, But there can also be other phenomenon um, of sleep disruption, conditions like narcolepsy or narcolepsy-like illnesses Mm -hmm. where patients have these not hypnagogic but awakening difficulties and so they still need a sleep study is what it comes down to and in that instance an in-lab study is going to be the most helpful way to determine if they're getting quality sleep if they're awakening in a stage of sleep that's appropriate mm-hmm. um, you may have a little more being the brain guy to say about those
3: phenomenon. well yeah I mean it it's, um, it's a disorder of wakefulness so we have sleep problems and awake Wakefulness problems, and and so the, the brain itself it needs um, a, to be in a certain state to be in awake to be awake. And um, if uh, if a person's in the wrong stage of sleep, you know, when they awaken, it can be a problem. But really, I think of it as quality of sleep. If you're going to sleep, getting good quality, getting sufficient amount of sleep, you should wake up. You might not be popping out of bed with rainbows and you know unicorns all over the place, but you could you know certainly um you know just take a shower or start getting ready and okay i'm i'm good for the day
1: okay all right well we've just got a minute or two left here any final thoughts of that you want to share with our viewers
3: um i guess uh you know just realize that sleep is you know like you mentioned at the beginning it's a it's a key part of health you do it for about a third of your life so if you don't do it well You need to figure out you know for that third of your life how to make the the rest of the two-thirds of your life better and you know don't disregard sleep as as an important part of your health yeah i think i'd reiterate that and and sleep is
2: largely dependent upon being a healthy person so it's not only important to health but you sleep better when you're healthy Mm -hmm. so eating a balanced diet um, having a regular time in bed having a regular time out of bed, avoiding substances that impact our brain and body negatively like alcohol and nicotine. Um, you know, The healthier you are, the more you can be active and exercise and eat right, the better you'll sleep. Mm-hmm. And that will promote being healthier during the day. And so it's uh, it's a two-way street. If you're sleeping poorly, look at your health otherwise mm-hmm. and see if you can improve some things that will make you sleep more soundly.
1: All right, so sleep hygiene, making sure you've got a good sleep environment, that's dark, quiet, dot pets jumping up and down. That, that's my biggest uh, sleep disruptor right now is one of our cats <laughs> likes to jump up on the bed. So uh, ways to kind of find that your environment that you're sleeping in too cold, too hot, is there a good temperature?
2: Whatever works for you. Okay. And so if you're someone who likes to be cool at night with a fan blowing on you then and your partner doesn't like that, you might have to sleep in a separate place. And your partner wants it warm and a different uh, um, sound in the room, they might have to sleep in a different place. Nobody said you had to sleep with your spouse. Nobody said you had to sleep in a bed. Um,
3: They do make electric blankets that that are... Dual zones, yes. That dual zone. (laughs) I will speak to that one for sure.
1: (laughs) That one has been a marriage saver for us. All right. Well, the winner of our prize tonight is Fred from Yankton. Thank you, Fred, for asking the question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this.
2: In healthcare, misinformation
1: can be as deadly as the most serious disease and spread just as quickly. For 21 seasons, the Prairie Doc Organization has provided health information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Medical professionals from your own communities volunteer each week to answer your questions. There is no cost to call in or to watch our shows. Follow The Prairie Doc on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. Most people know that getting enough sleep is important for their health, but many do not realize that there are specific health benefits that come from getting a good night's sleep. Getting enough sleep can improve your mood, help maintain a healthy weight, and reduce your risk of chronic health problems like diabetes and heart disease. Sleep can even help boost your immune system and improve memory. Despite knowing that sleep is important, according to the CDC, one in three adults do not get enough sleep. The National Sleep Foundation found that almost half of all Americans say they feel sleepy during the day, sometime between three and seven days a week. Many untreated health conditions can interrupt or affect sleep. Issues from an enlarged prostate, hot flashes from menopause, sleep apnea, acid reflux and restless legs are just some of the conditions that can keep us from getting a good night's rest. A lack of sleep can also affect or worsen depression and anxiety. Unfortunately, depression and anxiety can make falling asleep much harder, causing a cycle of worsening mood and sleep difficulties. Weight can also be affected by the lack of sleep due to hormones that regulate your appetite and sense of fullness. Lack of sleep increases the hormone ghrelin, which increases the appetite. Even partial sleep deprivation can increase the body's resistance to insulin. This can increase the blood sugar levels and contribute to the development of diabetes. Loss of sleep affects the risk of heart attacks and high blood pressure. This is related to the hormone cortisol, which is on our circadian rhythm and increases in the morning hours. Increased cortisol helps you awaken and peaks about 30 to 45 minutes after awakening. One study found that there was a 24% increase in heart attacks on the Monday after daylight savings time. This is thought to be related to that hour of sleep lost and increased cortisol levels. Certain immune components work more efficiently while you are sleeping to help repair the body and fight infections. Good sleep helps consolidate memories, improves creativity, and can even improve sports performance. Getting a good night's rest is not just nice, it's imperative to your body's health. If you're having trouble sleeping, it is important to talk with your healthcare provider to see what can be done to help your sleep improve. He or she can also help rule out any underlying health conditions that could be impacting your ability to get the rest your body needs. Count some sheep and get some extra Z's so you can stay healthy out there. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Pietola and Dr. Boyle, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about sleep apnea. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube. Visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper or online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Duck, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information, based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. is fundamental to a healthy body. The importance of oral health.
0: Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust.
6: The vitality of a rural community is closely tied to the health of its population. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. I grew up on a farm west of Wessingham Springs, South Dakota. After completing medical training nearly 50 years ago, My wife, Kathy, and I came back to Westingland Springs to provide health care and to raise our family. All my life, I've been an advocate for rural communities. Rural residents often encounter barriers that limit their ability to obtain the care they need. In order for rural residents to have the best health care outcomes, appropriate health care services must be available in a timely manner. The foundation of good health care is good health information. Prairie Doc programming provides rural communities with truthful health care information based on solid science. All Prairie Doc media is free and accessible through social media and South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am honored to be a volunteer board member of the Prairie Doc organization. I know the value of providing objective, evidence based health care education free of charge to anyone, especially to people who have limited access to healthcare professionals. Please help us to continue the legacy of Dr. Rick Holm of providing information based on science and built on trust. I urge you to go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today, as Kathy and I have done. If you don't feel comfortable donating online, please send our staff an email and they will send you a pledge card through the mail. Thank you for believing in and supporting our mission.
4: Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided
3: by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you with care and coverage. Hello,
2: possibility. Hello, healthy.
0: Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information
4: and with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison-Flandreau District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponson Saline Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.